Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. I've been listening to a lot of different people, and we talked this morning, and we did Exodus 13. We could go on to Exodus 14 and get some of that done, but uh, I probably will add more to the notes on Exodus 14. And so we'll wait a little bit for that. Uh, I notice that in Exodus 14 we see again those, at least two of the three words that are translated into harden, uh, in verse 17. And I behold, I will harden, Chazak, the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honor, Kabed, again, that is that's the same word that is also translated hardened, the heart of the Pharaoh. But here it says honor upon Pharaoh. So is it hardening the heart of the Pharaoh? Is it honor on the Pharaoh? Well, it's going to be something that increases on the Pharaoh. Because we know that to honor thy father and thy mother is to increase thy father and thy mother and to take care of them. And that's the word kabed. And... So they're talking about something increasing upon the Pharaoh. I will get me an increase upon the Pharaoh. And upon all his hosts, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And so some people think, well, God's going to destroy them, you know, and the, they're going to try to cross the water, and all the water's going to come down and destroy the armies, and they'll be singing about this. And then there's a question, uh, as to whether we should be singing about the destruction of anybody. But we talked this morning about the wrath of God as the consequences of going against the way of God. And the way of God is the law of God. And the law of God, the will of God, is right reason. It is what is actually logical. And reasonable. And it's according to the law of nature. And nature's God. Because the law of nature, the will of God, the right reason, the reason of God, are convertible phrases. Now some people say, well, which God do you serve? Is it Elohim? Is it, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of all the different names. Some people refer to Buddha as a God. Well, Buddha said, I am not a God. So that wouldn't count. <laughs> uh, Jesus said, you also are gods. So what does that mean? Then, you know, the people are com- accused of serving other gods and uh, whoring after other gods and making covenants with other gods. So when we're throwing around this term God, we need to understand what the word means. The same word they translate into God, they also translate into judges. Or judge. A ruling judge. That's the definition of most of the words that we translate into God, because there's more than one. Theos in the Greek, Elohim, but there's also Adonai. So, what word are they talking about? What do they mean? 
And people say, well, my God is the God of heaven. Well, there's a lot of gods that were claimed to be the God of heaven. Zeus was the God of heaven. <laughs> so which God are we talking about? <laughs> and you can put a name on it. But there's 40,000 plus denominations out there that all say they serve the God of the Bible. But they're not all doing the same thing. And then the question comes, what does it mean to worship God? And this is, this is something like, I just never fell for it. Uh, I, I, I guess maybe when I was real little, but I can remember pretty far back that this idea of worship, I, when people said worship, I thought one thing and other people thought another. And yet, when I look in the Bible, they tell you what worship is. You can certainly look up the words that they translate into worship and find out what worship is. And worship is serving or obeying God. What he commands. What And why does he command what he commands? I mean, he doesn't need you to follow him. He's not insecure. I mean, he supposedly, but God is this unmoved mover, this, the originator of creation, the one who, in a spiritual sense, whatever that means, some people don't have any idea. I mean, I have an idea in my own heart and mind. Other people say, well, there's nothing spiritual. Well, to me, that's, that's incorrect. There is something spiritual, but it's not something in this dimension. It's something in another dimension. And physicists will tell you that energy comes from other dimensions. They see it. You know, when they, they have their super colliders, they see energy coming from other dimensions or what they believe to be other dimensions. They calculate mathematically and they say, well, all these things are coming from multiple dimensions or different dimensions. Well, is one of those dimensions what we call heaven? And another of those dimensions what we call hell? Well, I can't prove it, but I'm just saying from a scientific point of view, they say there are other dimensions that energy can come from. Particles, fine, small, tiny particles, they've been able to, like, open a door and energy comes from these, I mean, these are the scientists. That's what they're saying. Are they right? Are they wrong? I didn't see the door open. But I believe that I have seen the door open and seen and experienced things in a spiritual sense. But I don't expect anybody to believe that. But that's, I, I've seen it. And until something better comes along, I'm going to believe it. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so, anyway... But that's in my heart, that's my faith, that's my belief. You, you have to figure out what your own belief is. But some people who cannot seem to connect with the Spirit of God. And if there is a Spirit of God, and there's supposedly, at least according to the Bible, there's other spirits that are not, you know, that God has created just like He created us. And some of them are obedient and some are disobedient. So what does that mean? Some sin and and some stick to the plan. The ones that sin are evidently doing something different than what God says to do. They they what they do falls short. Now they might be courageous, 
there's I know people that are very courageous. Uh, they may be very helpful. Uh, I know people that are very helpful and, and will give you the shirt off their back. But maybe there's some other aspect of God's character that they fall short of. And that's the definition of sin. It's falling short of what we should be. And so we all all sin according to that definition of sin. It's something where we don't do things according to the law of nature. And the commandments of God. What they really mean. Not necessarily what all those 40,000 denominations think they mean. But what they really mean. Whatever that is. I don't know. I, you know, we can take it one item at a time. You can jump all over and say, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And never come to an answer because you're jumping all over the place. But we can talk about some specifics. And we did this morning talk about some specifics that Moses was addressing and saying that we needed to do uh, and the people needed to do. And he often gives you the reason why. But we also showed you that Getting the leaven out of your household was not about removing all the yeast, but about removing all the cruelty. And why the cruelty in, could, could he never have talked about yeast? <laughs> and never meant unleavened bread? Because the word leaven also means cruel and is connected with a word that means violence. And is also correct, uh, connected to another word that, well, not connected to the word, actually can mean grievous. And of course we know that the Israelites were forced to serve grievously in Egypt. We know they, they went into bondage hundreds of years before, but their bondage became more grievous. And so, that the nature of that grievousness can be traumatizing to the Israelites. And what happens, you know, if you molest a child, say, say a, a child is molested by uh, somebody who sodomizes the child. That child may grow up with some trauma that will bring them back to the event that they were exposed to, and they may become child molesters. I mean, there's a whole history of this. There's a lot of people who study it. But yet, there's some people that are molested, and they never go that way. So we should ask yourself, what did this person who is, is actions and thinking are not altered by an abusive relationship, and what is different about that individual and the individual who does become abusive in their own relationship. We can we can do it with wife beating. As someone who grows up in a family where the wife is abused and and maybe beaten or browbeaten maybe only, maybe it's verbal, not physical. Well, that child may grow up abusing their wife. By the same token, someone who didn't grow up in such a home, may not do any of those things. Because somehow or other, when we react to something, it like puts a rut in our own psyche, especially when it's traumatic. And we may return to that trauma. 
where somebody did it to us, did something traumatic to us, we may do something traumatic to somebody else. We may become the perpetrator later on in life when we get older. You don't necessarily have to, but that we know historically that is very common. And what is the factor why one person becomes that way and another one doesn't? Well, the reality is this same process goes on why you honor your father and your mother. If your children see you taking care of your parents and sacrificing to make sure that they're, you know, maybe they become an invalid, maybe they become uh, senile or got Alzheimer's or something, and they see you having this tremendous patience taking care of your parents, they are far more likely to take care of you. If they don't see you do that, if they see you stick your parents in a home and say, somebody else has to take care of them, it's just too much trouble for me. That, then it's, it's likely to assume that your child may do the same thing when you get to that age. I can, I can show you the same process with livestock. That if, you know, occasionally, uh, a sheep that produces young every year or maybe twins every year, they will take absolutely impeccable care of both their twins. They will count to two every time they nurse. They will make sure the lamb is keep track of it. They will teach it to come when they call and they will grow up very big lambs. And they will do this year after year after year, but they will not do it forever. <laughs> About eight years of breeding Maybe 10 years. I've gone 12 years with some sheep. They've done a real good job of raising another set of lambs. They might drop off and only have a single birth or they might have triplets. But if they raise good lambs and they take care of their lambs, their lambs will be the same kind of you when they have lambs. If they're a female, they will grow up and have the same kind of relationship with their lambs. Most of the time, not always. If you get a lamb out of a ram that comes from a ewe that has that nature to it, they will pass that on genetically to their offspring. And they... They will pass it on, but they're not passing it on because they nurse the young up or anything like that. They're just, their genes will have a genetic memory that will pass down. Now, if, if the, the, uh, uh, mother, you, is giving birth to that ram's lambs and does not take care of the lambs, the young, lambs growing up, they may not be as good at taking care of their own because it takes those two (laughs) to produce lambs that take care of one another. I mean, I've actually raised crossbred lambs. When we first began to grow our herd, we took some lambs that had a suffix father and a Rambouillet or Colombian mother, and they produce what they call a crossbred or hybrid lamb. It's not quite hybrid like a mule or anything. They're still fertile and everything. It's just 
they're they're still sheep. It's not like breeding sheep to a goat or a goat to a sheep or a donkey to a horse. They're very similar, but they're not the same. You will get what they call crossbred vigor, but the next generation, it's it's what you'd call a crapshoot. You don't know what you'll get. You may get good ewes, good lambs out of it. You may not get good lambs. We got we had one that had lambs, had five lambs. What you think? Wow, five lambs, quintuplets. That's really good. No, that's really bad because you only has two spigots to feed them. Somebody's going to get shorted. You've got five lambs trying to suck on a mother who only has two teats. So that's not a good thing. Plus, they were all kind of runts. They were all kind of small. So several of them got fed on a, a baby bot. They are very vigorous. But the point is is that when you start mixing the the different males and the different females that have a different heritage, a different background, you're going to get a different product because there is an actual genetic memory that is passed on to the offspring, which is why they talk about the sins of the father visited upon seven generations because that genetic memory is going to be there. There also could be emotional memory of the the father beat his children. It'll be more likely that his offspring will have trauma in that same area. They, they may either beat their children or they will absolutely fail to discipline their children with love. They weren't disciplined with love. They were disciplined with anger and resentment. So it is likely that when they grow up, they will not discipline their children with love. They will not teach them and warn them about things that are dangerous with love. They may become abusive and beat their children, or they may have such a resentment towards their father for abusing them, they won't do any discipline for their children, and their children will grow up with not learning self-control, not learning you know, certain principles of correction. I've seen this with the people who are so resentful of the education they received in public schools. They thought they were so abused in public schools, and they may have been. But they now want to homeschool their kids. They don't want to send them to public school. And they may have a variety of reasons to do that. Okay, so they don't send their kids to public school that they want to teach their children at home which I think is a great idea. All my kids were home taught. I've never been to public school. Uh, most of my grandkids have never, uh, you know, well, I have a daughter that w- went to, uh, she didn't go to public school, but she was in a public university. Actually, I have two daughters, but one of them, she was only there to teach. <laughs> never been to school a day in her life, but she was teaching in the university. <laughs> so, but uh, And I had a son who taught in the local high school. And, uh, and that, there's a lot more to that story, but, but he never went to public school except to teach and to help out with the students. And he's actually contemplating another job where he might do that again, not as a teacher, but as kind of a counselor and overseer. He's just considering it, thinking about it. Uh, he may not do it. He's pretty busy with all the other things that he does. But, uh, 
they were homeschooled. But, you know, I wasn't a perfect father. Uh, their mother wasn't a perfect mother. We, we have some problems here and there, and hopefully we got better and better at it as the kids grew up. And hopefully we passed on a lot of good characteristics. And, but the child still has a choice. But when you traumatize your children, you may take away some of that choice. When you take away that choice, they may react to circumstances in numerous different negative ways. Like I say, they may over-discipline uh, their children. They may under-discipline their children. They may beat their wife or beat their husband. They may have never learned patience. They may never have learned to sacrifice for their family and take care of their family. But the point is, is these traits of society, which are so important, especially in a free society, have to be passed down from generation to generation, which is kind of the point of what I've said for the last 20 minutes, is to get to that point, because the kingdom of God is from generation to generation. Now, the people who who don't understand what uh, spiritual presence is, they don't understand the natural connection to another realm that brought this universe, this physical universe that we're in, into existence. We'll just call that other realm a spiritual realm because it's not in this realm. It's in another realm, another dimension, but it brought this realm into existence. And you can say it did so with the breath of God. This other realm, maybe we'll call it a higher realm, breathed into the darkness and the, and the, the deep, the possibility, the deep is empty space, breathed on it, and this physical realm came into existence. And Moses tells a story to trying to give people who don't understand all the details of such a monumental event, give them something to hang these ideas on with the allegory of creation. And I say allegory, it doesn't mean that God didn't create the world and the universe and the law of nature. And because he is nature's God, he did. But exactly how he did it, Moses wasn't doing a paper on on dimensional physics. Where one dimension actually brings something into existence in another dimension. By energy flowing from one dimension to another. Yeah, I know somebody who doesn't believe in uh, spiritual realms at all, but he said the other day that uh, he believes that when all the energy is is compressed into a black hole, all the matter, because matter is just energy in a what we call a solid form, you know, it, it will be composed of matter and gases and plasma and all these different forms of the material world. Compressed and compressed and compressed, and then he says that it creates another universe on the other side of the black hole. It explodes into existence on the other side of the black hole. That's his, his theory, and that is not far from some people's theory. And, and I don't really know whether that's true or not, and I'm not suggesting it. But he doesn't believe in a spiritual realm. 
But he just said the physical realm here created another universe that would be classified as another realm. <laughs> so, <laughs> and all the, the characteristics that we see that create the science so that, you know, chemicals and atoms and quarks and, and all these different uh, items of creation of matter of our universe are recreated in another realm. That's what he was thinking. But he doesn't believe that that's how we came about. Because <laughs> he's in love with the idea that there is no spiritual realm. That doesn't exist. And he knows this because God, and, and actually he's more of an agnostic, he knows this because he wants God to come and reveal himself to him, but he never showed up. But the reality is, if God is spirit, God probably showed up all the time. He's right there right now. But he doesn't live in the spirit. Or at least he thinks he doesn't. And the reality is, almost nobody alive is void of spirit. There's a part of you that is connected to the spiritual, what we call that other dimension, the spiritual dimension. And if there is a higher spiritual dimension, there's also a lower spiritual dimension, or it could be. I mean, that stands to reason. And we live in a physical world that is kind of stretched out between these two realms that we call spiritual because they're not in this realm, but somehow they're connected. And of course, that's partly where we get the idea of string theory, which is not, you know, string theory is the way we vocalize the idea of the physics of this universe. And, you know, quantum realm, all these, these are words, and, and their definition varies and everything, and you can get lost in trying to figure that out. But the point I wanted to make is, if there is a higher realm from which we came, the Spirit of God breathed this realm into existence, gave it form where there was no form, breathed on the, and brought about all the physical things that we now see as life, and that that source of that breathing is what we call God. Or by definition of what God is, the unmoved mover. It It's not moving in this realm. It's from another realm. But it moved this realm into existence. So that now we have physical tables <laughs> and and dirt to walk on and air to breathe and all that stuff. So... Understanding that is, you know, a possibility. I'm not defining anything exactly. I'm kind of beating around, looking at the biblical context of creation. God is this unmoved mover that set the world into motion according to a divine design. (laughs) If we can use that word, a divine design. Well, that divine design and divine will, which the design is the product of the will of God, and right reason and the law of nature are convertible phrases. Not by definition. So now we have some terminology that we can deal with God. The unmoved mover who has moved at one point and set the world into motion. His design is in every atom, in every molecule, in every air that you breathe, but he's also, his spirit is here too. And he has breathed his spirit 
into mankind. And to some degree, breathe this spirit into all animals, etc., at one level or another. So this spirit is in us. And we're made in the image of God so that we have this spirit, we have this physical existence. What it means to be made in the image of God, difficult to say. It's not very specific. It's not very descriptive. But somehow or other, we were created in a particular image or design that is based on this divine will. But we were given choices right away from the beginning. Now, again, this is Moses' story to give us choices. We can go back to Genesis. He's giving us choices. Puts two trees in the garden. One tree here. It's in the garden. It's there for a reason. Another tree over here. Real near each other, it appears, it sounds like. But we can eat from that tree, but we should not eat of the other tree. And the one that we don't eat of is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the one that we can eat of is the tree of life. Now, we know there's all kinds of other trees by the story and the way it says, but those are probably apple trees and orange trees or fruit trees. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Nut trees. And so, or whatever trees are around. You know, there are numerous trees, and we'll probably get to this when we start going through Exodus 13 and 14. There's a tree that... Moses supposedly cuts and puts into what may be brackish water, water you can't drink, and it makes the water sweet again. And according to the translation, he actually puts a tree in the water and it becomes sweet. Now, is is that what he did? Or is there no way to filter water through the wood of a tree, does the word tree there stand for something else? Well, we'll explore that when we get to it. But people are trying to figure out for hundreds of years, thousands of years, what tree could that have been? Because the well he was drinking out of and the people drank out of, it's still there and it's still brackish and unpalatable water. So it would be nice if we knew a tree that was, we could cut it down and then make that water so we could drink it, right? Well, there doesn't seem to be any tree around there like that. As a matter of fact, trees are decidedly absent from that spring. So, what happened to them all? Well, maybe they were all cut down. (laughs) There's a lot of places in the world where they cut down, you know, Easter Island. They used to have all kinds of trees on Easter Island. Cut them all down. They don't exist anymore. Now, they they could start replanting them. That would be a good idea. But the point is, is it's it's gone. But when we're reading the Bible, we have to understand that God is, to some degree, outside of our creation because he's spiritual. But being spiritual, he is also inside of our creation, but not so that we can touch and feel him. This was the whole thing about Jesus Christ, is that he had the spirit of God. Uh, He was called God. They said he would be called God. And he had this Spirit of God dwelling in him. See the Holy Spirit appearing. This is my Son who I'm well pleased. Who's saying that? And did every did everybody hear that? Did only some people hear that? I mean, they, they wrote it down. So what what is, what is really going on? We can just say, somebody could come along and say, I, I don't believe that. But 
if you really want to know the truth, you might explore it a little deeper. Find out what is he talking about. You know, and then, again, what words might you be misinterpreting that are in those statements? And as we were talking at the beginning of this show, one of the words that we might be misinterpreting is God. The Son of God. The Holy Spirit. Uh, what are these things? What a, it's a story. It's in the story. It's in the Bible. Somebody who was supposedly inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote these things down. We can go by the assumption that they are inspired and that you believe them. But in order for you to believe them, you have to interpret them. You have to have a definition for holy, a definition for spirit, a definition for God, a definition for son. What what are all the definitions of those words? Now, son is kind of easy, offspring. But you can have an adopted son that's not your offspring, so would that count? I mean, Moses was the rightful pharaoh of Egypt because he was adopted. It wasn't because he was the offspring of Pharaoh. He was not the offspring of Pharaoh. He was the offspring of his parents, who were Levites. And But he became the adopted son of Pharaoh because he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, who had no other living male issue to inherit the kingdom of Egypt. And the guy who eventually inherited the kingdom of Egypt, or seems to have inherited, did he inherit it legally? Did he have an actual right to it? Based on the laws of Egypt. When when uh, Pompey came to Israel, I mean, first he sent one of his generals that was requested by the, you know, we've t- told this story be- before, there was Hyrcanus, and Estabilis, who were vying for this position of king, a position they never should have had, but they could have. But they were supposed to write a constitution to keep this king from ever doing anything that would return the people to the bondage of Egypt. He couldn't even do anything to facilitate returning to the bondage of Egypt. Now, of course, the king has no power to put you in the bondage of Egypt. Until you give it to him. But you can give him the power to make you a slave by contract. You can agree. I will be your slave if you give me free bread. You can do that. And then you give. he gives you free bread. You eat the free bread. Now you're a slave. Now, are there rules about being a slave? Well, when Joseph set that up, he said you could only the king could only take 20% of your labor. That was it. You were a slave, but he didn't have 100% of your labor. It didn't say anything about the fact that you had to do, you know, if 80% of your labor is yours, the Pharaoh can't come in and say, I want you to work only in the mud pits all the time. 100% of the time you have to work in the mud pits because you're my slave. Don't have that power. He didn't have that power. This is a Corby system of statutory labor. He can say that, you know, we normally make, you know, a thousand bricks in 20% of the work day for a year. 
or you know maybe you you can make 300 bricks a day and he says well or 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 maybe you can make a thousand bricks in a day and uh he says okay so you got to provide me 200 bricks so you got to you got to make 200 bricks the first 200 go to pharaoh but the rest of the bricks go to you that's the kind of slavery he was in the truth is, in, in many of Americans, uh, when there was slavery in America, they did that. Even, you can even tell that just by reading Huck Finn. You know, old Jim. He saved up his money. What money does he have? He's a slave. Well, he could, he could, once he got his chores done, he could work and do other chores and make money. He saved up his money and he bought a cow. And then he was gonna, just graze the cow. He had a place he could graze the cow. And then he was going to milk the cow and sell the milk and make more money. He was going to do his chores. He owed a certain amount of chores to the people who owned him. But then his spare time, he could make extra money. Slaves did that a lot of times. Now, some people were very abusive slave owners. And they, you, they, you might have some free time, but you're so exhausted that you, you didn't do things. But many slaves bought their own freedom with the extra work they did on their own. And that, that's just a historical fact. Because all their labor did not belong to their master. Now, the chattel slavery is that an individual could own you. And you had to pay them back this debt. So you couldn't go somewhere else until you had that debt paid. But you could do that. See, like today in America, more than 20 to 30% of your labor belongs to the government. Because you're back in the bondage of Egypt. You don't own all your labor. They can take some of your labor away. Just like they did the government of Pharaoh could take... A portion of your labor away. It could be 20% in America. It could be 30%. It could be 40%. It could be 50% of your labor belongs to the government. If, if 50% of your labor belongs, belongs to the government, you can, you can move some, if you're in the United States, other countries, it's a little bit different. You can move, you say you can move to England. Or maybe you, you can buy an island somewhere. <laughs> And you can go and uh, maybe the, you create a salt mine uh, in the island where you, you bring in salt water, you let it evaporate, and then you rake the salt, and then you just keep producing salt, and you then you sell that salt, and you own the island. It's not in the United States. You're out of the United States. Well, did you know that the government of the United States... You still owe them 20% or more of that salt. <laughs> and that you can't get out of that labor debt that can go on for 10 years. If you don't step foot in America for 10 years, you still owe a portion of your labor if you make any money. Maybe you're an author. There you go. Maybe you're an author and you write books and you sell books and you do it from, maybe you're on a boat. You got your own boat. And you live on the boat and you live out the sea. Uh, but when you sell your books, 
you still owe the U.S. government for at least 10 years. That's in the books. That's that's part of your servitude to the United States. And you got in that servitude back when FDR. See, the, the atheist that I was listening to, or agnostic atheist, he was saying, you know, he was complaining about the government, about the Bible supposedly approved of slavery. Slavery was okay. It advocated slavery. It didn't really advocate it, but it says if you're going to have a slave, these are rules that you have to at least abide by. We know that that's the way it was because, you know, even Jesus said, Moses only gave you divorce because of the hardness of your heart. It wasn't that way from the beginning. So it's not a part of the law of nature to have slaves. You weren't supposed to go out and catch the slaves and bring them back and enslave them. You weren't to have somebody else catch them and then buy those slaves and enslave them. You weren't to do that. Of course, we see the Ishmaelites doing that with Joseph. They bought him out of the pit so that his brothers didn't kill him and he didn't die in the pit. But now they were indebted to the brother and they, the brothers went, you know, not the brothers, they were indebted to the Ishmaelites who were his cousins and the cousins went and sold them into Egypt. And they suffered for that eventually, but we won't go into that. But the point is, is that this is all a part of the law of nature. But the guy who says, oh, the Bible is for slavery. I can prove to you that he's for slavery. He advocates slavery. He advocates the same slavery that the Israelites were in, in Egypt. He's pro-slavery. Now, he will deny it, but we'll see, because I'm going to be on his program one of these days. Maybe he's listening to this, so he's got a heads up, but I won't tell him why I'm saying that. But I've given enough information about that. But, what uh, I was going to read to you, I'm going to read you a number of things, a number of quotes. And one of them is uh, Kings, First Kings 18. And it's 18 verse 18. Oh, I noticed, oh, I can, I've got, I could put like a dozen links on this page. I don't have any, uh, footnotes on the side, but eventually, hopefully, we'll get to Kings and we'll look at that. You know, it says, go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariots and get thee down uh, that the rain stop thee not. He's talking about that. And there's Jezreel. But what there, if you go back up to 1818, we see, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. And I've already made a link to Balaam so people can find out what Balaam is. Something's wrong with Balaam. Something's wrong with following Balaam. And uh, and they talk about Mount Carmel. And I should put links there because we've explained what Mount Carmel actually stands for. And the prophets of Baal. I can put a link in there and add that to it. And we can explain what's really going on with Ahab when he went to Elijah and what he was doing. And what it means to trouble Israel or to follow Balaam and forsake the commandments. Now, he would say, well, they're not my commandments. I don't have to listen to them. That's what a lot of atheists or agnostics or, you know, people of other religious groups 
will say that they're not my commandments. I don't have to. Why do I have to obey his commandments? Because if you understand what Moses was actually trying to say to the people and impart to them, he was trying to show them a way in which they could have eternal life. Not not that they would live forever necessarily, but that they would live and their children would live and their children's children would live because the kingdom of God is from generation to generation. Now, maybe eventually you will live forever, but your physical body that you have now is not going to live forever. Uh, something has to change because, you know, just based on statistics, I, you know, you know, it, 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 your your body's going to deteriorate and you're going to die. And if you do certain things, certain ways, your body's going to deteriorate much quicker. We just had somebody who's in his 40s. He died. And uh, just a neighbor right down the road. He just died. Suddenly died. <laughs> so what, why did he, did he get the vaccination? Well, I mean, what happened? Well, I actually don't know whether he got the vaccination or not. Very possibly could have. But I know a lot of things that he does do that would probably kill him. Probably kill me if I had done them. And uh, so he died probably sooner because of the things that he was doing. Did God kill him? Well, the law of nature killed him. If you do certain things, your body's going to give out quicker. If you do other things, your body may last much longer. And so that's just the consequence. It's not God killing you. Again, like we talked about this morning, it's the the consequences of going against the law of nature. Feeding yourself junk, garbage, not taking care of your body, not getting fresh air. Or maybe doing extremely dangerous things. You know, like skydiving. Yeah, I, uh, we have, if you go to our page on, uh, you can look up, uh, psychosis, I think. And on that page, I just put a test there that you can take, determine if you are a psychopath. <laughs> Gotta be honest though, psychopaths aren't always honest, but you can take the test. It's not diagnostic, I don't want to get into trouble with AMIA, but it's an interesting test. And if you score too high on it, you may be a psychopath. I'm going to put a couple other tests on that page. One of them to find out if you're vulnerable to the tactics of a psychopath. Because that that's probably more important to most people. <laughs> but uh, uh, the next quote after that 18 talks about eating at Jezebel's table. Well... Paul says, David says, there's a table that is a snare and a trap. And that is one of the things that we need to learn is which tables are a snare and a trap? How are they a trap? And where are they, what are they going to trap us into? Well, they're going to trap you back into the bondage of Egypt again, <laughs> where you're entangled again in what the New Testament calls the yoke of bondage. So what are what is that yoke of bondage? How does that work? How do we get into it? How do we avoid it? How do we stay out of it? Well, that's the secrets of the kingdom. The mysteries of the kingdom. That's what we're supposed to be learning. That's what Moses is going to be trying to teach you. And if you're not paying attention with your heart and your mind, 
if you don't let the spirit, which, okay, you don't believe in the spirit, but this is what the premise is, is that, I know some of you do believe in the spirit, but then again, how do I know you believe in the real spirit? Maybe you have mistaken emotionalism for spirit. That's not the same thing. Emotionalism is just chemical reactions based on, you know, the secretions of hormones in your body. And they can stimulate emotions. That isn't necessarily spiritual. Spiritual has to be from this other realm that we've lost sight of. Because now what would, according to the story that Moses gives, he talks about this tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, just for the sake of getting through the metaphors here and the allegories and trying to find out what Moses was really trying to say in another language thousands of years ago, and you have been reading in a translation with other ministers telling you since you were a child that it means this and it means that and it means this. And I'm saying some of those guys that were telling you what it means, they were wrong. Some of them were actually liars. Some of them were just deceived themselves. Some of them just haven't figured it out yet. But they're false in what they're telling you. Now, I can't even hardly explain to you exactly what is true. But if you're willing to seek it, and I'll I'll make a reference here because we're going to be getting into this as we continue through Exodus. If you bring your hand into a relationship of truth with your mind. (laughs) Okay. And uh, when we really understand that, we'll talk about the codes that are written into the Hebrew language. The double tops, the double kufs, all these double letters, which are making reference to the fact that you have to bring the physical realm all around you into a relationship with the spiritual realm, which will involve your mind and your heart. Now, I know a lot of people aren't going to get that right away, and they may ask for explanations right away, but we have to start somewhere. So... We're going to go back to what we said this morning, talking about Dennis Prager, who is on this uh, board or symposium with uh, Jordan Peterson and was going through Exodus also. And he talks about this Corbin. And he actually mentions that the word Corbin comes from a Hebrew word that means to draw near. Corbin actually means sacrifice. So how does a word that means sacrifice come from a word, or why does a word that means sacrifice come from a word that means draw near? Draw near what? Well, I will, I will give you a heads up. Draw near the tree of life. Draw near that thing that is actually in you that helps you connect like an antenna To that spiritual realm. You see, because you have a thing called DNA in you, and you have epigenetic DNA and all this, and you have millions and millions of copies of that DNA, and that DNA actually glows 
to with a very fine light if you put it in under certain circumstances you will actually see that DNA strand glow if you could magnify it enough because it gives off energy and uh, I mean you can shine a flashlight right through your hand so that you can see the bones in your hand you know we used to do that as a kid and of course you take a flashlight put in your mouth and make scary faces (laughs) because the light passes right through your skin but the fact is, is your your skin is actually producing a light too, but it's usually too faint for you to see. But it is both a sender and receiver of electromagnetic spectrum. Some of the electromagnetic spectrum, scientists will tell you this, you can't see with your eyes. You can't feel it. You can't experience it. It's actually beyond your perception. Now you can run it through filters and you'll see it, etc., etc. But if you get far enough down that spectrum, one way or the other, are you getting close to this spiritual realm? So let's go back to the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You want to draw near, because this, according to Moses' story, you fled the tree of life. You fled the garden. You wouldn't even be in the garden. You had eaten of the tree of knowledge. Now you can't even look at the tree of life. I mean, the first thing you wanted to do is hide. Because you realized you, everything got scary. You got, you got afraid. And of course, like I said this morning, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, the Bible tells you to fear not, to not be afraid. Once you're not afraid, you can go back and approach that tree of life. And you will plug back in and you will see things in a spiritual realm, in a spiritual way. The more you plug in, the more you will see things in a spiritual realm. And Corbin is connected to the idea of drawing near that spiritual realm. And that is about free will sacrifice or free will offerings. And what Moses is going to be teaching us in chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, uh, uh, on up to 22 and beyond, is and, and what he's going to talk about in Deuteronomy, is this practice of taking the life that God has given you and sacrificing some of it for others. Now, in Egypt, you had to sacrifice 20% of your life to the government. And they somehow manipulated that and and put heavy burdens on you so that somehow the way in which they calculated that labor now got to be an increase. It was still 20%, but 20% of more than it was before, and it became so burdensome you were actually killing your male children. So probably somehow that tax, and we I can show you places in history where this is the case, that the more kids you had, the more... Rent you had to pay, let's put it that way. That's a way you can see it. You know, if you're renting to occupancy, you can say, well, there's one family in here that's a father and mother and one kid. And then they have two kids and three kids and four kids. And they say, okay, I'm going to have to charge you more rent, more wear and tear on the property and all this stuff. So he's going to raise your rent because you got more kids in there. Okay, so... Is that how Pharaoh was putting heavier burdens on? Most likely. 
We can see in history where that that kind of thing, especially in Corvi systems. Corvi systems were around in the time of Rome. They were around in uh, in sp- what we call Spain today and what what we call Gaul today. That when the Romans came up there, they would negotiate with tribes to do a certain amount of labor, and you could work for the leaders of the tribe, and you would get special privileges, you get special things, but you were actually, you owed, uh, it was in America, early America. You were expected, everybody in a neighborhood was expected to work on the roads. If the roads connected them to another town, they were expected to work on that road. And they would come and do that. And that would be accounted for a contribution. So that if they were to put like a toll bridge on the road that they built, they built a road and they built a bridge, so now you could move your carts over that bridge, but they might want to pay for some of the materials. They could put a toll bridge up. They can't block your way. You could still go down in the ravine and up the other side like everybody used to do before they built the bridge. But you're going to get charged to go across that bridge. But if you help build the bridge... That, as a part of the Corvi, your contribution to the community, maybe you can take your carts across the bridge for free. Other guys can't do that. They'll have to pay to go across the bridge. This is, this is, this communities do this. It's part of the law of nature and they figured out how to do it. It's the way they did it in early America. And, uh, there's a lot of things, like they build a school. If you go down and help build the school, maybe your kids can go there tuition free. Yeah, that you you won't have to pay any tuition. Even though it's a public school, public schools often charge tuition. Because they still had expenses and most of the public schools were not supported by tax dollars. They were supported by contributions. And this Corvi system was a part of it. The Corvi system, as you often see it in history, is an agreement to give a portion of your labor. If you don't want the services that that labor provides anymore, you can stop giving that portion. You weren't bound in it like you were in Egypt. When you're bound in it like you are with FDR, then even if you leave the country and write books somewhere, they can come after you for a portion of the money that you make. If you 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 sell a bestseller and you make ten million dollars after you've left the United States, even if you have thrown away your passport and you denounced your citizenship, according to the laws, they can still come after you for a portion of what you produce. So if you sold got made ten million dollars with an invention, you're gonna have to pay them twenty, thirty, forty percent of that. That's the way it's set up. And that's the contract you signed when you signed up for that system. And they can hold you to it because the Constitution guarantees your power to contract. So you can contract away your labor. And then you're back in the bondage of Egypt. So you see how this kind of works? But if I took you out of the bondage of Egypt and you didn't change the way you think (laughs) and operate, you'll probably end up back in the bondage of Egypt again. So it was very important to Moses to teach the people a different way of operating as an intentional community. And while the Pharisees and the Herod set up a system of legal charity, FDR set up a system of legal charity, 
The Pharaoh set up a system of legal charity. Nimrod set up a system of legal charity. The king of Sodom set up a system of legal charity where you signed up, you were registered, you had to pay in a portion of your labor, but you would get some benefits back. Usually in order to get you into that system, they have to have a certain amount of money there or a certain amount of goods there and say, okay, you know, if you want to do business in our trade zone, you have to sign up. And Herod had two systems like this going on, one through the Jerusalem temple and the other one through the temple of Roma. And you, once you signed up, you had to pay in. Now, there were a large number of people in Judea who never signed up. They were unregistered. And those people would be necessary. There was a large number of people in Egypt that never signed up for the 20% labor goes to the government. They never signed. It tells you in the Bible. There were a large number of people, not the majority of people by any means whatsoever, but a large number of people. If there were a million people in Egypt, or say there's a 100,000. Well, there could be 5,000 people, maybe even 10,000 people, more likely a number closer to that if you had 100,000. They never signed up where they have to give 20% of their labor to the government. They're not in that system, that core V system. And the Bible tells you this. But I can guarantee you that most of the people who read it don't make the connection. They don't see that they're making, you know, they're actually going into who was going into bondage and who was not. And just to give you a heads up, help you with your studies, it was the priests. The priests lived on a stipend that they were receiving from where, how that worked. There's a number of different ways they that worked at different times in Egypt and in many cultures. But if I say priest... Because of what people already think, some agnostics and and uh, atheists or agnostic atheists, I guess you would say, I mean, they will think that, oh, we don't need no priests. Because, uh, you, know, you know, I don't I don't believe in your religion. We don't need religion. I don't br- believe in religion. But the reality is about... And I'll be generous. 90% of the people who say that we don't need religion, religion is not important, that whether they're agnostic or atheists or whatever, we don't need religion. They actually have religion. And they are firm believers in religion. And they are participants in their religion. And they are dependent upon their religion. But they will deny that. They will say, no, I'm not. I don't, I don't have any religion. I don't believe in that. I don't think I need a religion. I don't need any gods. But they actually have gods. And they have religion. They have a lot of religion. And they're very dependent upon religion. And they donate regularly to religion. <laughs> now, I can just hear them. No, I don't. I don't do any of that. that. That's ridiculous. I don't do any of that. Well, it's because of their definition of religion. They said, well, I I googled religion and I know that religion is what I think about a supreme being. Except that's not actually what religion means. (laughs) It's not what they mean mean 
of, you know, what they think about a supreme being. It is now to a lot of people because a lot of people have changed the definition of religion. But when those five times that the Bible mentions religion, of course, now four of the times that they mention religion, they mention it in a bad sense. That it's not a good thing. It's actually a bad thing. Only one time in the Bible they talk about religion being a good thing. And and most of the atheists and agnostics, they don't have that religion, the good religion, what they call pure religion. They have the bad religion. So now, how do we describe the difference? Now, I know many of you people listen all the time. You you know where we're going with this. The people who haven't ever listened or or, or will end up listening to this and have never listened, they may find this interesting. Religion was how you took care of the needy of society. <laughs> the sacrifices that you gave to Pharaoh and the sacrifices that you gave to the Pharisees and the Sadducees was to provide for the religion through the temple of Jerusalem and the temple of Roma. It was to provide the social welfare, the social safety net for their society. That's why you were paying into it. And the priests were to manage that fund that you were receiving by those sacrifices of the people. Now, if you were signed up with Herod and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that sacrifice would be compelled. There were actual priests or ministers even, you can call them, administers, who would come to your house, count the Cummins branches and count the, you know, pace off your grain fields and count the fish that you brought in uh, to shore with your fishing boat. And they would say, well, we get 20% of that. <laughs> well, you caught a 100 fish. Well, where's our 20? We want that right now. We're going to take it down to the market because we don't need all that fish. We can't, we don't have any refrigeration. We can't keep it. We're going to take it right down the market. And we're going to turn it into silver and copper and maybe if you got enough fish, we'll turn it into some gold. And then we're going to put that in our purse and we're going to take it back to the temple. And we're going to put it in the treasury and we're going to call the treasury Corbin because that's what they were doing. And if you were registered with them and you caught some fish, you had to give them a share of those fish. If you produce some grain, you had to give them a specific share of that grain. If you had a hundred lambs that you lambed out this year during lambing, you would have to give them 20 lambs when those lambs were full grown. Now, they could calculate it a couple different ways. When the lambs were full grown, you might not have a hundred lamb. Maybe the coyotes got a few, the bobcats got a few, uh, you had to feed your shepherd who was out there watching them. He, so he ate a couple. So maybe you only have 80 lambs when they're full grown. Well, depending on how they set this up, they could, they could say, well, we count how many you gave that your use produced and you produced a hundred lambs. You only got 80 left, but we're not going to deduct those 20 that you lost from the original hundred. So you still owe us 20 lambs. Or they could calculate it. Well, you only got 80 when they're ready to go to market. So you only have to give us 20% of 80. They could do it either way. One way is 
more fair than the other, but they could do it either way. But the point is, that's what happens when you're in the bondage of Egypt. They just come and take it. That's what Balaam system is like. That's what Babylon was like. That's what Nimrod was like. That's what the king of Sodom was like. That's what the Pharaoh was like. (laughs) But that's the bondage of Egypt. That's also what FDR is like. That's what LBJ is like. That is what Obama is like. That is what Biden is like. That is what Trump is like. Now, he might give you relief. He might say, well, you lost a few, so you only have to give us 20% of the 80 that you have left. Because maybe he's a little bit more benevolent. But you're still in the bondage of Egypt. Are you catching my drift now? Are you putting it together? Because <laughs> you're in a lot of trouble. You've gone back into the bondage of Egypt. And Moses is showing you how to get out of it. But in order to really get out of it, you have to understand what getting out of the bondage of Egypt is going to require of you. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, I've never heard of such a thing. This is so different than what I was taught in school. Well, I'm sure, I, I don't know what, I don't know how old you are, but I saw them changing the, I'm so old, I saw them changing the history books. <laughs> and I've read so many old documents and old books. I got stacks of old books up here on that. I actually saw an agnostic holding up a book. I haven't had time to read this. Yeah, I haven't read. I got lots of books I want to read. You know, like this. You know, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. I haven't. I haven't had time to read it. I read it. <laughs> yeah, but even if you read it, if you open it up with preconceived notions about what religion is, what God is, like I said, he's got gods. He got. He's got gods. Many. All kinds of gods. Same word that they translate into God, Elohim, in the Old Testament, they also translate into judge. If you look it up just in a standard concordance today, it will tell you that it means ruling judge. This is how you get God's many. Now, how do they become your gods? You say, well, I want the benefits that your government offers. You know, I want, I want Social Security, I want free medical, I want my kids taught in your free schools, I, 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 I want to use your banks, I want, this, oh sure, just register as a member and you'll get all these benefits. We're not going to guarantee them, and we show you this. You go look up our page on Social Security at Preparing You and you'll see. They write right in the agreement that they can stop giving you benefits. They can say, no more straw for you, no more free education, no more welfare, no more food stamps. As a matter of fact, if you've got any extra food, we're going to take it away from you. They can say that. And they can do it. That's just the law. I mean, you can look it up. I mean, so you go to our page on Social Security and we give you... You know, the actual law, we show you, you, you can, you can go look it up. You can, most of them you can see online. You know, the statutes and how it works. We explain it all. And it works just like they were doing back then. Now Rome didn't used to do that. 
you go back two, three hundred years and there was no free bread in Rome except what came through charity, through free will offerings, through communities that decided to take care of the needy of their community. People who had been a part of the community and helped out and everything, but they fell on hard times. You know, they got sick, they got crippled, maybe they got injured in the war. They would take care of them. That's the way they did it at the beginning of the Republic. But as the Republic began to decay, they began to do something quite different. (laughs) And when Jesus came along, they were doing something really different. And of course, that's why Herod created his whole system. Because he was friends with some of the emperors. He knew some of the emperors and some of the high people in Rome. And by the time that he came along, there was a thing called the Elementa. was a Roman welfare program initiated by Emperor Nerva, according to some, and expanded by Trajan. Now, it actually was, it was already being done by Caesar before Caesar was Caesar. <laughs> he was Caesar because that's his family name. But before he began was going to try to become the first emperor of Rome. Imperator would be the Latin word. He never became the imperator of Rome because a bunch of guys went up and stabbed him in order to save the republic. But then they got killed by a guy named Octavius who took the name of Augustus and became the first emperor of Rome. Well, he was he had a system to feed the Roman welfare of the people long before Nerva. They just hadn't set it up quite like the Elementa of the Roman welfare program. That It changed under Nerva. And it was actually, for part of the time under Nerva, it was including and included universal health care. It didn't last very long. They were already headed towards bankruptcy. Trajan did the same thing. But Trajan, I think, was a little bit better than Nerva. Maybe I'm a little prejudiced because Trajan said, leave the Christians alone. Why did he say leave the Christians alone? Because they wouldn't sign up for the Elementa. They wouldn't set, sign up for the Roman welfare program initiated by Nerva or even the one by Augustus. Because to them, that was idolatry. Because Jesus said, you've seen the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. It's not to be that way with you. Well, Trajan, Nerva... Augustus, they exercised authority. They forced the contributions of somebody to provide the welfare system of Rome. Julius Caesar did. He he didn't force it from the Romans. He wouldn't have been very popular. He forced it from the Gauls. He sold them into slavery so that you could have free bread, welfare. But Moses wouldn't do that. Gideon wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't do that. But Caesar was called the son of God. Augustus was. Julius Caesar. There was hint that he was called the son of God. But it really got going with Augustus. He was the first emperor. So now he was also the first apotheos of Rome. You know, when, uh, the power of the apotheos was under Caesar. And being under Caesar, he appointed all the gods throughout the imperial courts of Rome. I just said gods. But, and that's what he would say. I'm going to appoint all the theoses. 
in the imperial courts of Rome. And Theos is the Greek word that we translate into gods. And he could do that because he was counted as the son of God. He was called the son of God. And he had the office of Apotheos, which means appointer of gods. But what was he appointing? He was appointing all the ruling judges who are going to decide good and evil for you. All the people that had signed up for the system of social welfare under systems like the Alimenta or the Cura Anone, uh, which is a way of saying care of Anone. Was, uh, it was done, Anone was the goddess. But that's just a symbol. There was, there was no goddess actually walking around and handing out welfare and free bread. That was done by ministers of the temple of Anana, the goddess of Anana in the city of Rome. Well, how'd they get the, you know, this is the corn dole, what they call the corn dole or the grain dole in Rome, which, you know, in the early days, originally they gave out grain, but then later on they started, they created a whole system of baking bread and they gave out bread and every loaf of bread had a seal on it. You know, when when you were baking it, they would put this hot plate on it that had an image or something to identify the bread. And because this was under government regulation, and 200,000 of the Roman adult male citizens would receive this either subsidized grain or free bread. And, and the bakers who were making it they could sell some of the bread for profit, but they also could pay their taxes with the bread. And they could actually get even paid by the government because the government was actually footing the bill for the bread. And this is why they had a, a piece of metal set on every loaf that they baked to identify whose bread they were making. Because if there was a question of how much they, you know, flour they put in the bread, I mean, like, was it all flour? <laughs> did they get some sawdust somewhere <laughs> and mix into the flour? And so, that you know, the truth in labeling, you know, got to have your FDA. <laughs> Checking to make sure that everything they're giving out was what it They do that with almost everything now on the market, except for the mRNA shot. We're not allowed to see how they make that. <laughs> There are no federal inspectors checking to make sure that they are following proper protocol for the making of that. But, heck, you're just injecting that into your body. <laughs> so, I mean, don't worry about it. There's no danger there. But anyway, the point is, is this has been around for a lot of time, for a long time. In that book, Gibbons, he talks about this. He talks about the Christians being a viable republic in the heart of the Roman Empire. Not a democracy, because democracy was considered a bad form of government. Polybius told us that 150 years before Augustus. Well, actually, I got my dates wrong. About 100 years before Augustus seized power, Polybius said, democracies always fail. And, And the reason why is because, for the same reason Benjamin Franklin said they always fail, if you went to public school... Unless you're really, really old, you probably didn't hear that Benjamin Franklin said that democracies almost 
always fail because when the people learn that they can vote themselves benefits at the pu- at the public's expense it will bankrupt it, it will bankrupt the government that's why democracies fail and and of course marx knew that they would fail which is why he advocated democracy because democracy leads to socialism and socialism will eventually bankrupt the system and then you can implement communism and you can force everybody to work. And it won't be just 20% of your labor. It'll be a lot of your labor. <laughs> it may be your life. But Polybius knew that if people became accustomed, if the masses became accustomed because of their appetite for benefits, became accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, the society, the individuals of society, would degenerate into perfect savages. You know, rioting in the daytime, burning their own neighborhoods down if they didn't get what they wanted. They'd bust into stores uh, that were owned by their own people and rob them. Just grab everything they could, stuff they didn't even need, and take them out. They would just be perfect savages. This is what would happen if you became accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others. And there wouldn't be any more liberty. Plutarch, 100 years after Polybius, well, that was probably closer to 150 years after Polybius. I mean, Plutarch lived for a while. But he said the greatest destroyers of liberty are the, the gifts, gratuities, and benefits of government, of those men who exercise authority, which is why Christ forbid it. Why Moses forbid it. Why David warned us. And that's all in the Bible. Because if you start doing that, you'll make slaves of people. But guys who go around and pick and choose what they want to read in the Bible, they can come up with, oh, that's for slavery. And it's, oh, let's do this. And, you know, I mean, like they, they actually think, they actually think that, you know, after a woman has her natural uh, period that she has to go and kill a dove. They actually believe that's what the Bible says. They, they actually believe that in order to practice pure religion, you had to pile up stones that were uncut by a chisel. No chisel had ever touched them. Pile up these stones, get a sheep or a goat or, or maybe one of those pigeons and, and slit its throat throw it on the stones and set it on fire and burn it up. They actually think the Bible says to do that. And of course, we can show you that the Bible doesn't say to do that. And we can show you why we say that. And we can take you logically through the language of the Bible and the concordances that everybody has on their shelves and show you the words in the text that that's not what it means. The same as getting the leaven out of your house, getting the yeast out of your house, is not getting the leaven out of your house. It's just getting the yeast. It's just a ritual to eat unleavened bread for seven days and then have a feast. That's just a ritual. That's not the point. The point is to get that force out of your house, that appetite for benefits at the expense of your neighbor through the power of government to force the contributions of your neighbor so that you can have free stuff. Which, of course, by definition, even if you Googled it, (laughs) 
desiring your neighbor's stuff through the exercise of authority is certainly a covetous practice. We know that. And we know that according to the Bible, it will make you merchandise. According to the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, it's a snare. To eat of those tables is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry is covetous. That your religion is social security. Or, you know, national insurance if you're in another country or... Uh, social insurance. Uh, I was trying to think of all, I know one of the countries, I think it's Canada, to, to look at their program it has the initials S-I-N. <laughs> I always thought that was funny. But it's social insurance network or social insurance something or other so that they get, it's S-I-N. With us, it's S-S. You know, social security. And that's the system of Corbin. That's contrary to what Christ said, contrary to what Moses said, contrary to what Gideon said, contrary to all the prophets, all the warnings of the prophets, David, Paul. You're not to be coveting your neighbor's goods and you're certainly not to be asking the government, would you go next door and bite my neighbor? <laughs> Take a chunk out of his flesh. Bite him until it bleeds so that I can have free education, so that I can have free welfare, so that I can have... Social Security, so that I will feel safe. You know, that's not love thy neighbor as yourself. I heard the, the agnostic fellow say he liked that. He thought that was good, to love thy neighbor as yourself. But he thinks it's love to empower people like Augustus, Caesar, or Nerva, or Trajan, or Marcus Aurelius, or Diocletian, Empower them to force the contribution of the people. Or Constantine. Let's have power Constantine. Heck, he, he went in and killed all the people in a 10,000, uh, a popular, uh, a, a village of 10,000 people. Killed them all. Killed his partner. Killed his partner's family. And, and then he started a church. <laughs> and he called it, he called it a Christian church. And, and people fell for it. And, and, and he and he got everybody in Milan to elect new bishops. And of course, that's the boys with the creed. That's a, that's a new phrase I just made up this morning. The boys with the creed, because the, they were they were the guys who had a creed. You know what they were in charge of? They were in charge of the grain distribution of welfare in places like Constantinople. And, uh, you know, that's what they did. Why? Because they were the bishops of the new religion of Constantine. Now, the Christians had their bishops, but their bishops could not exercise authority one over the other. Their bishops, their ministers, their priests could not force the contributions of the people. But they actually did rather well during the, the depressions of Rome and the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And they became this viable republic. If you don't know the difference between a republic and a democracy, we have articles for that too. But anyway, but this is really what the Bible is about. The Bible is about governments that set you free and governments that 
entangle you again in the yoke of bondage. Now, the governments that entangle you, entangle you again in the yoke of bondage will offer you a form of religion that is called public religion. It's where their priests go house to house and force the contributions of the people that have signed up for their religion. And you'll get all kinds of benefits, especially at first. They got all kinds of benefits at first. But eventually somebody will hijack the system. Wait a minute, I think that's happened already. <laughs> they will. Once you become degenerate enough that you don't even know the difference between pure religion and public religion by force. Pure religion by charity and love and public religion by forced contributions. Because the forced contribution charity... Is legal charity. That's the Corbin of the Pharisees. That makes the word of God to none effect. And that, if you think that's a good way to go, you will end up not seeing spiritual things. Now, a lot of people don't see spiritual things, so they will substitute emotional things for spiritual things. So they're going to have to have very charismatic ministers up there that can really stir up the crowd and, you know, get the juices flowing. You know, those hormones flowing. So you get this good feeling. Uh, they may need big screen TVs. They may need, you know, a lot of music. Because you, you can generate a lot of emotion with the music. You'll have to convince them that they're saved already. And that they're going to, you know, that they're going to be accepted into the kingdom of God. And that they'll be spared. Uh, I actually heard the agnostic fellow talking about that, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to be thrown into the lake of fire and burn forever. Well, actually... The only one who gets thrown into the lake of fire, which doesn't mean hell, <laughs> you're projecting ideas in there, is the prophets of the beast. And, and what's the beast? It's the beast is the guys that are willing to bite one another. You know, there was a there was a movie where you had these. You know, they had a lot. I didn't see the whole movie, but they had like bad guys and the magic guys, and you had other guys fighting them, and young guys who. Supposedly you're going to rise up with a special sword or something like that. I don't remember exactly the details. But they had one of the, one of the evil monsters that would show up was actually made out of like cockroaches. All these cockroaches would come together and they'd form this like shadowy creature man walk around and he would come to get you. And he was all he was was all these cockroaches together. And if you, you know, hit him with a car or a bus, I guess in the movie, I didn't see the whole thing, but all of a sudden the cockroaches were cast everywhere and then, then they would come back together <laughs> and form, cause there was a spirit in this monster. Well that, that's, you know, that's, it's a movie. I guess it was a movie. I don't think it was a TV movie. Too many special effects in it, but I didn't see the whole thing, but that's kind of what the beast is. The beast is not one giant monster. Although it will work like one monster that will go around and devour who he will. It's created by all those people that are willing to take a bite out of their neighbor so that they can have more benefits, more free stuff. You know, they covet their neighbor's goods. Now, most of these guys are too cowardly to actually go over to their neighbors and wrestle something out of their garage or whatever, you know. You know. So they got the government to do it. They, they, they've given the teeth 
their teeth to the government and the government will go and force their neighbor to contribute. And they think they're good guys and they think this is a good idea. But Polybius knew it's a bad idea. Uh, Plato knew it was a bad idea. Uh, Benjamin Franklin knew it was a bad idea. Plutarch knew it was a bad idea. Jesus Christ knew it was a bad idea. David knew it was a bad idea. And Moses was trying to teach you what the good idea is. You still have to create a social safety net that takes care of one another, but it has to be by charity, by love, not by force. I mean, John the Baptist said it. You don't do it by force. Everybody was doing it by force when John the Baptist came along. Just about everybody. As there were some of the scene groups that wouldn't sign up. Uh, evidently, Paul, the, uh, no, not Paul, listen, Peter wouldn't sign up. I, Paul wasn't signed up either. That come to think of it. I don't know that he would, but he didn't need to sign up because he came from a wealthy family. And his father was free, and so therefore he inherited that freedom. That, that's what Romeos meant. Romeos didn't mean you were a Roman citizen. That's, that's a poor translation. Later on, that term might have that effect. But at that particular time, Romeos actually meant that you were whole, that you were in possession of your rights. Nobody owned your labor. They they couldn't take your labor away from you. And there were there were a number of Jews that had that position of Romeos. Because, again... The priests, the ones who should be in charge of the redistribution of wealth, were exempt. They were outside. That's This is what we're going to see when they had a system of priests when they first left Egypt. But eventually, the guys who would take over that position were generally the Levites. And of course, most of the priests in their society were already the Levites because we know that Aaron knew the arts of the temple. And again, once you understand that the temple is for the care of the needy of society and pure religion, unspotted by men who exercise authority one over the other, then you know that that's how the kingdom of God works. And I'm, I'm telling you, and we'll, we'll look at lots of places where Moses was telling you and other prophets were telling you, even, I heard the guy quote Hosea several times when I was listening to some of his show. I just wanted to find out what he was. I, I was going to agree to be on his show. And and eventually, I'll be on his show and then I'll make reference to this. I won't, I won't give him a heads up. Maybe he's listening already. Who knows? Uh, and maybe somebody will tell him. <laughs> but that's okay. Because the truth doesn't change whether he gets ahead. <laughs> but the reality is is you have to tell people this stuff more than once usually very few people will get it the first time the more you ponder it the more you pray about it in other words desire to know the truth yearn in your heart I mean that's what Christ is saying he's saying things like strive persevere but he also we see you study to show yourself approved that's the translation. But in the original Greek, the Bible is actually telling you to be diligent to show yourself approved. Be diligent in what? Faith, hope, and charity. Sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and, th- hundreds and thousands and taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. That's going to draw you near the tree of life. 
near the Holy Spirit. And part of his discussion, he couldn't see, like, why do we have to keep the Sabbath? You know, that's his day, right? That's his day. Uh, well, no. The Sabbath, I mean, it says right in the Bible, the Sabbath was made for man. It wasn't made for God. God doesn't need a Sabbath. But they say the reason why you keep the Sabbath is because he gives you the example. He tells the story. This is this is the reminder. He tells you the story that God made the earth in seven days. Now, you, you can say that's absolutely seven days. That's what he did. He only used seven days. He did all this in seven days. Yeah, you can say that. You say, if you don't believe he did it in seven days, then you don't really believe in God. You don't really believe in the Bible. I don't believe in the Bible. The Bible's just a book. Now, I, I believe that the authors of the Bible were inspired by God. And they wrote down things on paper or on papyrus or, you know, some sort of medium. And it eventually got written over into the Bible. There were some mistakes and errors, and there's some people going in and fudging stuff. And there's certainly been a lot of people trying to manipulate the definition of words, especially in the Hebrew and the Masoretic text. But the way to know the truth is the Holy Spirit. The way to know the truth is to tap into the tree of life, which everybody can do. And it has to do with that frontal lobe and your hand and what you do. The sacrifices that you make out of love for others. They will draw you near the tree of life. You get close enough and all of a sudden it will do a little arcing and all of a sudden you'll see things that you didn't see before. But we're a long ways away from that so it's going to take a little while for us to get back. (laughs) So, We're just going to keep trying to go back. I said I'd give you that number again. Are you ready? You got your pencil and paper. If anybody out there who's listening online, if you want to ask a question, you have to call in. And we have a lot of people. You can listen to the show if you call in on this number as well. But the number is 319-527-6208. 319-527-6208. Or you can go to preparingyou.com and in the search engine type in the word freedomizer. And that's with a Z. Miser is with a Z. And it has the number there. So you can get, but you have to call in the number on a landline or a cell phone. And then you push one and you can ask a question. You, those of you who have been around for a long time, you know that a lot of people are out there are thinking, oh, like I was saved and, and they say, because I accepted Jesus into my heart as my personal savior and I did it on such and such a day and, and, uh, I had this great feeling and all this stuff. Some of that is just emotionalism. Some of that is maybe they did get a little close to God. They did reach out and tap that divine spark. Usually it involves a serious amount of soul searching and maybe you overcome some of the trauma or the addictions of the life. But the journey goes on. If you stop there, and I I gave this analogy probably 40 years ago, that 
Okay, I see the signs that say this way to L.A. And I look on my map and I know if I follow this road to L.A. and I go down this road and go this road, then I'll, I'll go. And you, you'll see the signs that 100 miles to L.A., 50 miles to L.A. And finally you get to a sign that says L.A. And he said, I made it. I'm in L.A. And you stop. Because <laughs> it says L.A., so I must be there already. And no, no, you're not there yet. you got to go beyond the sign. <laughs> if you go beyond the sign, then maybe you'll be in L.A. If you want to go to L.A. But if you want to go to the kingdom of God, you can't just get a spark one time and... and and if you're having trouble keeping the commandments, in any of the commandments, including the ones about thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, if you're still locked into the bondage of Egypt, depending on men who exercise authority one over the other, you're not doing what Christ said. Now, you might call yourself a Christian, and that's one of the problems that this this fellow has, is that he thinks, oh, well, they were Christian. I was a Christian since I was a kid. No. No. Not really. I mean, you wanted to think of yourself as a Christian. You, you, you listened to some church that said it was Christian. But the boys with the creed and the followers of Constantine, they were still killing people. They were, they were, uh, they were getting away from forcing the contributions of the people. But they were still doing it. And we, you go read an article on Constantine, you go read an article on Ambrose and the other articles that I'm trying to get done. I mean, it's a huge amount of time to put all this together. You shouldn't need all that. You should have figured this out. And if you were really listening to the Holy Spirit, you'd realize, you know, I, I need to, that isn't love to force my neighbor to contribute to my welfare. I can see that. And, I'm not really saved as long as I think that's good. I'm not really born again if I'm not willing to see the light of that truth. If I I want to think that it's okay to covet my neighbor's goods through men who bite my neighbor, Jesus, I, I don't think you're following the way of Christ. And if you're not following the way of Christ, you're not following Christ. And if you're not following Christ, you're not really a follower of Christ. And if you're not really a follower of Christ, you're not really a Christian. Now, you may be a wannabe Christian, and you may have been touched (laughs) by the light. But don't stop. It's a journey. It's an infinite journey. There's no end to that journey, to the light. Now, the agnostic guy, oh, you're just imagining all this. Well, what all did I say? You know, if he comes back and listens to this, I'll I'll tell him about it when we eventually get on the program. I don't know when we're going to schedule it. We'll let you know on the network. If you come and find out on the network, we'll let you know when that is. And then, you know, I think that's one of the deals we'll have is that we also get to publish the recording ourselves, unedited, in case somebody tries to edit something. I don't see him editing. I think he he's pretty honest about it, but I don't know. He might edit us. <laughs> I don't know. But we would like uh, the recording in its raw form, and then we'll put it out. I mean, I edit almost all these recordings. Because I make mistakes. I make mistakes. So anyway, I've kept you guys long enough. And I somebody else has probably already done my chores. And uh, I don't see any hands going up. And I didn't see any new numbers coming in here. If they don't come in in the next minute or so, we'll call it good. 
And uh, probably next week we'll start on uh, Exodus 14 and we'll start finding out some of the other tricks that Moses left behind. Oh, I see more people just came on. I don't know if they're going to raise their hand. But anyway, uh, I'll give it a minute or two. So anyway, you can go to preparingyou.com and look up all kinds of things. we got all kinds of things. You can join the network, which you go to the network links, join the network links. Uh, the network is just an email network, and it's based on geography because we know that if you're going to have Passover, <laughs> you're going to want to invite the people next door in, not the people that are your buddies from high school. You want to, it has to do a little bit with geography because you say, well, I don't want that guy next door because he's got bad breath or whatever. That's not good. You, you got to love your neighbor. With his faults. You gotta love it in neighbor. But then, then we can have a discussion as to what love is. Cause, you know, the, the, we talked about it at the beginning. The guy who was brutalized by his father could become up, grow up and brutalize his kids. But another reaction is that he won't even discipline his kids. And I, I didn't really get to it. The unschoolers. They're so, they hate school so bad. They don't want to have any schooling, so they unschool their kids. Now, truthfully, most unschooled kids, you know, that's a quote, unschooled kids. My fingers are going up for a quote. They do, on average, about as well as the kids that go to public school. But you don't want your kids just to be average. You want them to really learn a lot of stuff. You want them to have all kinds of skills. Because the more skills they have, the more options they have. But there's nothing you want to teach them more than to see the truth from the source of the truth. Which isn't the source of knowledge. But it's the source of wisdom. And you want everybody to be wise men. (laughs) So anyway, there's a reason why I said that. But uh, you'll know later. So anyway... That that's very important that we we do that and uh, go to the network, join the network, join uh, eventually become a part of the living network, join a congregation, and start uh, spreading the news to other people as you begin to figure out what the news is, and start building the network up so that more and more people can hear this because it, it's exponential. If we get if if you get five people added to the network and then those five people get three people each and then those people get two people each and, I mean, you'll have thousands and thousands of more people come. Now, we know a lot of those people will depart. They will not persevere. They will not, you know, continue to seek because seeking the kingdom, it's a process. It is the process. Of getting back to what is called eternal life. And there's there's all kinds of eternal life. Eternal life is on many, many levels. So, But we'll have to save that discussion for another time because I'm losing my voice. So uh, I see nobody's hand coming up. So peace on your house. Thank you all for coming. And uh, may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom 
with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.